Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Simple Homebrewing, still available at all your finest retailers. So do us a favor, buy a couple copies. Please. Five, yeah, five or six at least. Now, between the two of us, we have over 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. And on today's episode, we're going to head to the pub to cover some of the beer news, because there's always beer news. Before we head over to the brewery to talk about something cold and confusing, and exactly what the hell it is that Denny and I have been doing in the brewery, before we get into the lounge where we talk to Ryan Farrell, the new director of the EHA. And, of course, we'll answer your questions, we'll give you a quick tip, we'll give you something other than beer, and we'll get you on your merry, pinty way. But before we do any of that, please take a listen to these messages from the people who make the show possible. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association, publishers of Zymergy Magazine, organizers of HomebrewCon, and enjoyers of homebrew. Join your friends in fermentation at homebrewersassociation.org. And by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. Welcome back, everybody. If you do business with any of our sponsors, be sure to let them know that you heard about them here on the Experimental Brewing Podcast. And as always, we're going to start off by letting Drew tell you about the latest episode of The Brew Files. Yes, well, in the latest episode of The Brew Files is actually a replay. The replay is going to play into what the next episode is. So go back and listen to episode 97, which is actually a replay of episode 57. And it's all about Craig Shaplin and his triple IPA and particularly how he goes and makes his beer. And we also want to let you know that April 9th, we're going to be doing a Brew Your Own online boot camp about experimentation for home brewing. Uh, find out how to do it, why to do it, where to do it, who does it. Uh, see, did I leave out anything? Uh, well, what, what, exactly it it, yeah, what exactly it means. <laughs> yeah, right. And if you're interested in attending and watching us do weird stuff for four hours. You can go to byo.com, byo bootcamps slash registration and sign up for it and we'll see you there. Or just go to the show notes and click on the link there. Yeah, that's covered. probably a lot easier. <laughs> and don't forget you can support the podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can click the AHA, Amazon, Brewers, Friends, or BYO links on the website and by going to Patreon and pledging out a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... It's World Central Kitchen, and we really love this one. Uh, it's an organization set up by Chef Jose Andres, and he does it by utilizing your local food resources. Uh, for instance, if you have some sort of disaster in your community and people need to be fed, what happens is that this fund will go to pay for a food service organization in your area to provide the food to them. So it's great. 
It's local. It helps out the people where you live. So please, please, please click on the Patreon link and send us some money. We think this is so important. We're doing it for an entire year instead of just the six months we've done all our other charities for. And not only that, but we are going to match whatever you guys contribute uh, out of our own pockets. So come on, hurt us, contribute big, and make us really pony up some bucks. Woohoo! All right. Well, now, having said that, let's go have a beer so that we can deal with our impending pain. <laughs> yeah, I guess uh, numbness is the best way to deal with it. Stick around. We're going to head over to the pub. We'll meet you there in a couple minutes. Y-Yeast is redefining wintry mix this quarter, so we invite you to toast these new exclusive releases as we head into the new year. An original from our early days, 1087 Y-Yeast Bohemian Ale Blend is being released for the first time ever to homebrewers. Look forward to the qualities of this versatile blend in your next British or American style ales. 1882 Thames Valley Ale 2 returns for its crisp, dry, and malty profile and the ability to produce bright bitters and dark ale styles. And if you're seeking a cold-savvy yeast for winter brewing, 2105 Rocky Mountain Lager is ideal for North American and light lagers. These Y-Yeast Originals are released now through the end of March and are available for a limited time at your local homebrew shop. Find out more at whyeastlab.com. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. Welcome back. We're sitting here in the Experimental Brewing Virtual Pub at the corner of Everywhere and Nowhere in cyberspace, and we are having a couple beers, and Drew is drinking one that is a real favorite of mine. I was going to say, our beers this week are actually really close to each other geographically. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Uh, We're we're both having Oregon beers this year. Not a surprise for me, but for you, a little different. Yeah, so I just had my club's uh, monthly meeting. I gave a presentation on Pilsner. Expect to hear something about Pilsner before too long in the brew files. And to get myself in the mood and to share beer with people to actually talk about it, we got our hands on some Heater Allen Pills. And Heater Allen is a small father-daughter brewery out in McMinnville, Oregon. And they specialize in doing sort of traditional European lager type beers. 
And I will tell you what, that pills, damn, it's just good. <laughs> they make they make some of the best loggers I've ever had in my life, kind of like in this little town uh, in the middle of nowhere in Oregon. And they are just astoundingly good, huh? Yeah, I was going to say, what, one hour southwest of Portland, and arguably probably, at least in my mind, most famous for having the Spruce Goose in a museum there. But <laughs> I mean, th- this beer is perfectly balanced. It hits it hits the high note of having a good hop aroma without being overly aggressive. The bitterness is exactly what you need in the back end in order to get rid of the malt, and there's actually kind of a nice, rich malt middle. I think my only complaint is I think I'd like it like for it to finish just a touch drier, at least the cans I had. Um, but still, I'm not turning this one away because that was good. <laughs> yeah, man. I've, I've had like an Oktoberfest from them. I've had a Dunkel, which is, you know, a, an underappreciated and underseen beer style. Uh, they do pretty much nothing but lagers, and they are all great, great lagers. So uh, if, if any of you guys out there have a chance to get your hands on a Heater Allen beer, give it a shot. I don't think you're going to be disappointed. Yeah, I'm still just confused how it showed up here in L.A., but I'm grateful. <laughs> yeah, really, that is a little strange. <laughs> and you, sir? Well, I have broken into the Ale Song stash once again because they had a release recently, and it's about time to go pick up my beers from that release. So what can I do? i got to make room by drinking some of the old stuff. Oh, and, what uh, was you? <laughs> yeah. You know, and I, in some ways I feel guilty talking about Ale Song all the time because a lot of you can't get it. But you know what? I'll just say I'm really sorry you can't get it, and I'm glad I can. The one that uh, that I'm drinking is their Coconut Rhino Suit. Now, Rhino Suit is their Imperial Milk Stout that's pretty much a staple of their line. But they always uh, have some variation of it. There's, you know, the the Senior Rhino with Mexican chocolate. Uh, they did a version of it with raspberries, a whole bunch of different versions. And so this time they uh, threw some coconut into the bourbon barrels where they were aging the beer. And uh, you mentioned balance for Heater Allen pills. And that's what all the Ale Song beers are about. And you know, the full name of the brewery is Ale Song Brewing and Blending. And it's the blending part there that uh, really, really makes it. These guys make beers where the flavors are perfectly melded. Uh, you know, there's bourbon in this beer. There's coconut in this beer. There's, But nothing jumps out and smacks you over the head. It is a perfect melding of flavors. And that comes from the fact that they are master blenders. You know, they can put uh, various batches together and come up with an incredibly well-balanced beer. Again, they they have limited delivery around the U.S., um, I know you can order, but that may only be for delivery here in Oregon. I'm not really sure. But at any song, go to alesongbrewing.com, find out where they're delivered, find out if you can get it, and then empty your bank account to buy as much as you can. I'll agree. They are good. So thank you for that. And now sticking in Oregon, our first piece of news was sort of the big surprise merger that happened. Acquisition? Partnership? Acquisition. Uh, between. Yeah. Between Deschutes, which is one of my favorite and trusty old standby reliable breweries, and sort of the punkish upstart brewery of Boneyard, um, 
which has been largely known as being like a big draft beer house and, and a lot of IPAs, right? So, yeah, yeah. When I think of Boneyard, I think IPA. Turns out, I mean, the founders of Boneyard had originally worked at Deschutes, so there's already a pre-existing relationship there in the company. But I think what was interesting to me to just just see, like, this was one of those points where Boneyard had gotten to a point in their growth where they either needed to raise a bunch of money and go capitalize stuff to be able to actually expand, because this is one of the natures of the business. It's really hard to keep a keep a company at just flat growth and actually maintain its health. Um, or, you know, they were going to have to decide to stay really small. Compounded by the fact then that you had COVID hitting and COVID went and turned around and sort of put a big dent in their largely draft focused business. So I think you were saying earlier when we were talking before the show that it's really hard to even find Boneyard in cans near Boneyard. Yeah, it, it's around, but I tell you, every time I go out specifically looking for it, it seems like uh, I can't run across any. And in, in the world of uh, West Coast IPA, which God knows is what Oregon is all about, uh, Boneyard is definitely one of the best out there. Probably a lot of you have never heard of them, but uh, that's one of the things behind the merger with uh, with Deschutes is that they hope to go for uh, more packaging and a wider distribution. So keep your eyes open. Hopefully in the not-too-distant future, any place you can find Deschutes beer, you should be able to find uh, Boneyard also. Well, that certainly would be nice. Um, I think the other thing is, in reading some of the, the evaluations of it and the interviews with them, uh, it sounds like Tony, who's the founder of Boneyard, is looking forward to being able to actually get back to doing brewing work, as opposed to like doing all the financials and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> yeah. And and leaving Gary Fish at Deschutes to actually kind of handle the the money the money problems and like some of the branding exercises and getting things ready to move. So it even sounds like, at least in Tony Lawrence's mind, that this is a, a bonus for him to be able to get back to what he's actually really loved doing in brewing, which is brewing. Yeah, you know, and there hasn't really been a lot of information released about exactly how this is going to work and, you know, um, what each side is getting out of it. But uh, I think that they both obviously feel like uh, it, it's a benefit for, for each company. And I'm going to be really, really excited to see where things go from here. Well, if it means more Boneyard, it means I could actually get my hands on some of their IPAs on a regular basis. Uh, assuming that the beer character doesn't change, and I would trust Deschutes in that front, because, again, Deschutes is one of my favorites, um, then, yeah, it'll be good. Yeah, right. Well, and, you know, and I don't know, I mean, it could very well be that Boneyard will still be brewing in their facility. And well, again, this is just one of the many unknowns about the whole thing. Right, and in the interview that that we'll post, they talked about, like, at least initially, yeah, Boneyard will still be brewing there, but then eventually, at some point, they'll have to make a decision to actually then transfer the brewing operations completely over to the Deschutes facility after going through all of the, the usual rigmarole to, you know, keep the beer the same or relatively the same. Uh, and then what happens to the old Boneyard facility? Hmm, that's going to be a good question. Could be one hell of a brew pub. Could be. So there you go, Deschutes Boneyard. Hope you guys are excited that to possibly see some more, well, to see some more Boneyard. Uh, and if not, tell us. What's wrong? <laughs> yeah, really, and don't go, oh, no, more IPA. Come on, there's always room for good beer no matter what the style is. 
And now on from uh, Deschutes and Boneyard, all the way about halfway around the world over to Egypt, where archaeologists have announced that at Abydos, or uh, Abydos? Yeah, Abydos. I probably still have that wrong. Uh, that they discovered the oldest large-scale brewery. And I thought this was cool. They were saying it's about 5,000 years old. And it was uh, a joint Egyptian and American team. And it had over 40 pots in there to do, like, the whole heating of the, the mash. And it's just really kind of nifty to see that, hey, you know, this big complex. And they're saying eight large areas, each about 65 feet long. And each of those with actually 40 pots was there just to make beer. Yeah, 5,000 gallons at a time. Can you imagine that? Uh, and they're saying that, you know, they think that maybe this was built near a palace because they uh, used beer. <laughs> Evidence for the use of beer in sacrificial rites was found during excavations in these facilities. So I don't want to be giving any of you guys out there uh, ideas. Uh, this was ancient Egypt. We don't want to see anybody using beer for sacrificial rites now. Yeah, I mean, again, to think about it, like 5,000 gallons. That's nearly 160 barrels of beer. Or sorry, 100. Yeah, 160 barrels of beer. That is, I mean, that's large even by modern craft brewery standards. Yeah, that, you know, that's at a time. I mean, you know, breweries that uh, I've kind of worked with, worked in, have been in the 20 to 30 barrel uh, production range. So this is like, you know, five, six times bigger than that. And, and it just boggles your mind, doesn't it? Yeah. So the, and again, in that in the Middle East and the Near East, you know, beer beer back during that period of time was very very important. I mean, it was a staple of of society in a way that it's not today even. And so the fact that like there would be these large scale production facilities is really kind of cool and completely unsurprising, but also really damn nifty. It survived this long. <laughs> yeah, man, it, it really, really is. Uh, we'll post a link to the article because you guys need to take a look at some of the pictures from it. It is truly, truly stunning. New BJCP category coming in. Ancient Egyptian ale. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. huh? <laughs> so from Egypt, we go to Argentina, where uh, there were beer pirates. Uh, somebody, uh, let me see here. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't know any good way to to tell this story without it seeming kind of absurd and a little sad too. Well, I'm, I think that it's it's both. But basically, uh, a brewery had uh, teamed up with some uh, divers, and they decided that they were going to age a beer sixty six feet underwater. So they put one hundred and eighty five gallons of beer in barrels down there, and I assume that that was really kegs as opposed to uh, to barrels. Um, and uh, they let it age for a while, and they were going to blend it with another beer, and when they finally went down to get it, it was gone. Uh, the diving instructor who was kind of behind it said, I started crying. Three or four people without morals destroyed the work of so many people who put in so much effort. So, you know, well, what, what can you say but, argh, matey? I know, right? So, again, uh, barrel-aged beer, remember, this is supposed to be blended, which kind of is becoming a little theme here in the episode. But the other thing that they had also said, because it was three brewers who, who came together in uh, Mar de Plata uh, in Argentina, and they they had said that the 
because the beer was meant to be mixed with other beer and then prepared for sale, that they probably they don't think they stole it for their own consumption because it was, and I quote, a lukewarm, gasless liquor that would be very difficult to drink. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds just like your beer. Hey, shut it. Um, <laughs> but no, it, it is, I mean, like, all that effort gone, and it's just like, oh, all right, well, there you go, but our mateys. Pirates be, pirates be. Pirates <laughs> be. <laughs> All right. So, from pirates to homebrewers no longer being as piratical as they were in terms of uh, breaking the law, the AHA just announced that uh, in South Dakota that they have brand new uh, favorable homebrew legislation that's uh, been passed. Essentially, it's the sort of usage laws that we've been seeing, right? A lot of states had laws that said, okay, yeah, fine, you can go homebrew at home. Um not anything clearly on the books about you being able to transport to places, not being able to use it for things outside of your homestead, and also not being able to have it, say, at a brewery or bar. And so just like what we had here, it happened here in California, in um, the South Dakota legislature, they put in House Bill 1109, uh, and it's been signed into law as of February 25th, 2021. And it basically allows people to, one, include cider, because cider wasn't originally used there, and it was uh, permissible now to take homebrew, homebrewed beverages onto licensed premises so long as the product is conspicuously identified, which is very common, uh, served free of charge, and does not exceed three fluid ounces. So I'm guessing that means per serving. Um, and the premises have to be licensed to sell alcoholic beverages. So, again, it's it's a, a, a law that you'll see a lot of this is happening now with the HA and has been for the past couple of years trying to get it so that homebrewers can do things legally that they've already been doing, kind of just under the idea of like, well, of course I should be able to take my beer over to my buddy's house. Yeah, right. It, it sounds a whole lot like the bill that we got passed here in Oregon maybe 10 years or so ago. Uh, and it's uh, basically, it just is kind of like a common sense homebrew law. Uh, and I don't know if there's any place else that still needs these, but I guarantee you that if there is, the AHA will be helping local organizations uh, get laws like these passed, and it's just another great reason to join the AHA. There you go. Legal homebrew. Who knew? Now, (laughs) let's go make our own. All righty. We're going to head over to the brewery. We're going to be talking about yet another new beer style that's popped up. And who knows? Maybe it's a flash in the pan. Maybe it's not. Stick around. We'll debate that when we come back. Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve MechaGrade. For more information, please visit MechaGrade.com. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the work to cool enough to add Whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super-fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. 
jaded chillers aren't just works of art. They're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. are bubbling the stainless steel is polished there's beer to be had we must be in the brewery and it's time for us to talk some of the brewing stuff we've been seeing and also some of the brewing stuff we've been doing and the first one is a brand new brace yourselves for it ipa style (laughs) oh my just what we need yet another slight variation on ipa that Somebody calls a style. More IPA. IPA all the way. And in this particular case, this is coming from uh, the brewmaster at Wayfinder, uh, Kevin Davey. And he's writing about what makes an IPA a cold IPA. And so I've actually been doing some research in India Pale Loggers recently uh, for an article I'm writing. And this was apparently kind of his response to the whole IPL thing because – Let's face it, there aren't that many good IPLs out there. And he, he wanted to find something that, that could be an IPL without being an IPL. And so this is what he ended up doing. It was basically an IPA with a lager yeast. Basically taking out the you know, USO5, 1056, type complex, and then using 3470, right? And so in this particular case with his stuff, you know, he, he started complaining about both the IPA with just lager yeast and then you know, running as a typical uh, IPA ferment, and then also a dry hopped lager. He was basically trying to find something that would bridge what he felt like were Wayfinder's strengths, you know, both making half lager and half IPA. And so this is what he wanted to do. It was kind of an adjunct IPA with 3470 or whatever their house lager strain is, but fermented at 65 degrees. Hmm. So what the hell makes it cold? You know, I read this, I'm going, where does he get cold IPA when he ferments 3470 at 65 degrees? I, I just, I do not understand. Well, he said, I mean, his his primary thing is he wanted to avoid any sort of yeast testers, right? And so that's the reason why he went for for their lager strain. Done warm. He, he says the warm to avoid any uh, additional sulfur. Um, yeah, and but then, then how, how does it end up being cold IPA? Because the beer is cold when you drink it? Well, I mean, I think really it's just, you know, hey, look, I've made an American lager-esque base, right? So Pilsner malt uh, or pale malt and rice. I'm using a lager strain. And then warm. I'm borrowing – well, and then I'm borrowing techniques from Italian Pilsner in terms of doing sort of this – Dry hop at Croizen and dry hop under pressure. Um, now, do I think the cold IPA name makes any sense? No, not particularly to me either. I mean, I do think it's interesting that, I mean, like he's trying to put some name around this different set of techniques that he's doing. Um, 
but yeah, cold IPA is just confusing to me because yeah, to your point, there isn't anything really cold about it. No, I mean it's it's closer to to an IPL than it is to, uh, to a cold IPA. If I was going to be making a cold IPA, I would be using either uh, oh something like Y seventeen twenty eight or in ten oh seven, and fermenting it in the fifty two to fifty five degree range, uh, Fahrenheit of course. That would be a cold IPA to my mind. This stuff is. Like simply an IPL fermented warm. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, but also with adjuncts. So well, and uh, and that different uh, dry hop uh, technique. Lager can have adjuncts in it, you know. Uh, yeah, but most IPLs don't. Yeah. At any rate, you know, I guess it's coming down to a question of semantics here. It might very well be a, a really fine beer, but I just don't get the cold IPA part of it. Yeah, 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 I was gonna say yeah, you're you're hung up on the terminology, um, which is fine. <laughs> I mean, he, I mean, you know, I'm also hung up on his definitions of what you know uh, an IPA with lager yeast or, or an IPL is. Uh, I, I would have to say that I don't necessarily agree with his uh, definitions because they, again, it just doesn't make any sense to me. But many things in life make no sense to me, so. I'll just learn to accept. There you go. That sounds like a perfectly good plan. It's a better way to walk through the world. But, yeah, I mean, right. the new school article that Kevin wrote, uh, we'll include a link to it, because he also includes 16 examples of cold IPA. Uh, obviously, I think most of them from right around Portland area. Um, it's interesting to me. Like, I'll be curious to try it and see if there's actually a real big difference there and see if there's a reason why I'd want to pursue that as a thing regardless of cold IPA or any other name attached to it. Yeah, I have to admit that this just sounds totally gimmicky to me, but uh, that that's me. What can I say? <laughs> All right. Let's, so what do you, what have you been brewing? Well, I've been brewing a, a beer that I'm calling just IPA. <laughs> just because I like the name. I, I have one that I call just another IPA. There you go. So this particular uh, IPA I was doing uh, using the uh, malts from Root Shoot to explore those uh, and using some of the new uh, Yakima Valley Hop uh, Lupo Max to explore that as an ingredient as well. And it's really, it's just a real simple beer recipe. It's basically the Root Shoot, I think it's a Genie uh, Pale Malt. Right. And a little bit of their Light Munich in there and nothing else. So hopped with uh, Warrior, and then hopped with a combination of the Idaho 7, you know, because we had been talking about Idaho 7 and all the survivable uh, techniques, and also then the Yakima Valley Hops Lupomax Citra, which uh, the Lupomax seems very similar to the YCH uh, Cryo product. Uh, it seems a little bit more plant material than the than Cryo. Um doing, you know, basically just a boil edition, one boil edition of the Warrior for the firm bitterness, two Whirlpool editions, a, a cooler Whirlpool, so 170 degrees for that Idaho 7 Citra, and then I'm cold crashing the, the yeast cake out, and then I'm going to cold dry hop with a ton of a ton more of the Idaho 7 and that Lupamax Citra, and just go with it. And I used the uh, the Imperial House Strain, which is the Imperial's version of uh, of Chico. Sounds sounds like just IPA to me, man. I know, right? I mean, it's it's supposed to be pretty damn simple and pretty damn clean, and 
Make it drinkable. <laughs> yeah, really. It sounds great. Yeah. And for you, sir? Uh, I am uh, getting ready to brew this year's batch of Wee Shroomy, and I needed to build up some yeast for it, so I am making a rye APA, American Pale Ale, using Y Yeast 1728, and... Uh, I'll get that uh, get that done and pull the slurry from that and pitch it into somewhere between eight and ten gallons of wee shroomy here in the next few weeks and get that underway. Uh, let me see. I really I don't. Oh, you know what? Yeah, because it's a rye APA. Now I remember what I did. I kind of based it on uh, my rye IPA, and uh, I went with the uh, Columbus and Mount Hood uh, combination of hops in it, uh, kind of like in the same schedule as I do for the uh, the rye IPA. Uh, and I also just kegged a, a batch of IPA. Yes, yes, yes. We make a lot of IPA here. Um, <laughs> and, uh, I did a, I did a 12 gallon batch of that and I divided it up, uh, same bittering hops, but then one of them was, uh, dry hop with, uh, four ounces of, uh, Talus, Talus, the new hop from, uh, Yakima Chief. And the other one was dry hopped with Good old Cascade and Centennial in cryo hop form. So we have one that's a very uh, new hop IPA and one that's a very classic hop IPA. And they're, they're drastically different. And that just shows how you can split a batch. And just by using different dry hops, you can end up with two very different beers. I thought it was illegal to make an IPA without some sort of form of citra or something in there. <laughs> yeah, you know what? That, it's interesting drinking this Cascade and Centennial IPA and going, there's no tropical fruit in this. There's no tropical fruit in this. And you know what? I'm loving it. There you go. And I did want to come back to one other thing. Uh, the Just IPA was also the first chance I got to play around with my tilt. Um, and we'll hear more about those adventures in a later episode. But I wanted to, again, give a shout out to everybody who gave me your recommendations about using the tilt and some of the foibles of it. But I have to admit, and I bugged Denny with a couple of links to the spreadsheet just because it is who I am. It was really kind of interesting and fun to be able to watch what was kind of happening in the brew tank while it was going on uh, and just doing the sort of the whole number obsession thing. So, yes, is it silly? Yes. Do, am I going to depend upon it to be completely accurate about all my numbers? No. But it also uh, showed to me that I dropped my gravity a hell of a lot further than I thought it was going to. Uh, and when I say a hell of a lot further, I mean by like four points. Because I went from 1069 to 1010 as opposed to 1014, which is where I was expecting it to go. So I got a much bigger IPA than I was, than I was initially hoping for. So I'm going to have to adjust my dry hop, which is actually another good reason, I think, to have some of that information right then and there. Why, why wouldn't you just take a hydrometer reading when fermentation was done and see that it was at 1010? Because that's another time that I have to open everything up and risk infection and I got to go sanitize something and I lose, I lose the, the hydrometer jar of beer, even in, even in one of the Brewing America hydrometer jars. Shush. May I just may I just say that if you can't take a hydrometer reading without infecting your beer, perhaps you should be thinking of taking up knitting as a hobby. Nah, needles scare me. <laughs> yeah. Okay. 
So, uh, should we get out of here and move on? I think so. It's time for us to lounge. Yes, indeed. We're going to head over to the lounge, and we're going to be talking to Ryan Farrell, the new director of the AHA, about uh, his background and where the AHA is heading. So, please stick around for that. Yakima Chief Hops is a 100% grower-owned global hop supplier located in the Pacific Northwest with a mission to connect family farms to the world's finest brewers. With their new online store, YCH products are now available wherever brewers choose to shop. Browse the aisles of your local homebrew store or buy direct from YCH at shop.yakimachief.com. Also, experience the new YCH Mobile Solutions app, a free, sustainable alternative to the popular hop variety handbook with information on more than 120 hop varieties to help you make the best beer possible. Available now in the Apple Store or at Google Play. everybody. I was uh, recently able to get online with Ryan Farrell, who has taken over as the director of the AHA in the last six months or so. Um, and, uh, you know, I've kind of known Ryan for a lot of years, but I didn't know him well. So it was great to have a chance to sit down and talk to him and find out a lot more. And, uh, I think that you guys will be interested in it, too, uh, hearing more about his background, hearing more about where the AHA is heading, and uh, some of the things that they've been doing to deal with the current situation in the world. So please sit back, relax, grab yourself a beer, unless you're driving, and check out this interview with Ryan Farrell, the new director of the American Homebrewers Association. Hey, everybody. Today, I am talking to Ryan Farrell, the director of the AHA, and uh, a lot of you may not know Ryan, so we figured this was a good chance to give you a chance to get to know Ryan and to hear about what's going on in the AHA these days. Uh, by the way, I just voted for governing committee today, so if if you guys haven't done that, get out there and do it now. The, the uh, election is open. So, Ryan, how's it going, man? Danny, it's... Good to be here, dude. I'm excited to talk with you. Great. Well, we're excited to have you, and we're excited to uh, have people get a chance to know about you and uh, and about what's going on at the AHA. So let's start with the easy stuff, and why don't you just tell everybody about yourself, uh, about your brewing background, and uh, what's going on? Great. Uh, happy to do it. Before I do that, Denny, I have to start by uh, giving props to you and Drew for the myriad ways you've been supportive of the, the AHA over the years. Well, thank you, man. Uh, you know, it just seems like the right thing to do. Um, so, yeah, a little bit of, about me. Um, I'm about six months into the role as the director of the AHA now. Um, I'm 14 years into my career with the Brewers Association as a whole. Um, already stepping in with the AHA has been an honor. 
um, for, I'd say, 12 or 13 of my, my BA years. I had the privilege of working a lot alongside Charlie Papazian, Gary, and Paul Gatza. Um, I got to watch them and see the way that they connected with our, our members. So those three guys are, are never too far from my mind when I'm thinking about the AHA and the homebrewing world. Yeah, man, that's that's where the legacy comes from, huh? That's right. Um, but, you know, Denny, I started at the BA as a, a part-time data entry person. I was 22 or 23 years old. I had uh, absolutely no idea what I was doing or what I wanted to do. Um, but I fell in love with the beer world. Um, I realized that um, the, the Brewers Association and the AHA were a place that I, I, I wanted to build my career and figure out what was next. And um, it was actually, um, I think, about 13 years ago that I uh, became full-time by virtue of adding the duty of putting together the AHA's daily forum email summary, which uh, you were then and are still a prominent participant on. <laughs> yeah, man. It's like if, if there's something I can do online to talk about beer, it seems like I do it. <laughs> um, and then just a little more about my, my beer journey. You know, I'm a novice home brewer, um, still have the world to learn uh, about um, homebrewing and the, the technical side. And again, that's one of the reasons I'm excited to, to be here with you and have enjoyed going back through your archives. Um, you know, I took and passed BJCP about 10 years ago, judged once in Boulder, um, took and failed the certified Cicerone uh, exam. Uh, the tasting portion tripped me up. I think I got a little bit in my own head. Um, but, you know, overall, I'm excited to sort of tap back in to some of those roots to get closer to the homebrewing community. And, you know, I'm really just energized by the passion I see in the community from our members. Um, and joining the team during COVID has been interesting uh, challenge, to say the least, an exciting challenge. Um, canceling in-person homebrew con last year, you know, which I think in, in many ways is it's kind of the spirit animal of the AHA and, and the homebrewing world. So that was that was very hard to see. And, um, you know, all the various pivots we've tried to make around living in this COVID world and still being there for our members and, and being the hub where they can sort of let that passion out. You know, we're, we're still figuring that out. Yeah, man, I have to admit that the virtual homebrew con last year seems to have been a real, real success. Uh, really popular. So, you know, no matter what happens going forward, I hope that we can like maybe keep, uh, keep part of that going on again. So I, I mentioned the governing committee elections, uh, recently. I've been on the governing committee for 15 years. Oh my God. Um, I'm gonna have to kick you off. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, why don't you talk a little bit about what the governing committee is, how it's formed, and, and just what we do? Yeah, happy to. You know, as I see it, the governing committee is just another example of the passion I see in our members. So you can think of the governing committee as AHA members who care deeply enough about the American Homebrewers Association and the role that we play in the homebrewing world to volunteer their time to, to make the organization stronger. Um, they meet monthly 
um, in, in the evening. Again, I'll, I'll volunteer um, to both give strate- strategic guidance to me and the rest of the AHA team. And, and also, and this is uh, ramped up in the last 12 months, take on real tangible projects um, like helping us convert recipes um, and get past issues of Zymergy up on the website. So they're strategic and a working group. Um, and, you know, they've also been an important sounding board for me and the team as, as I've settled into the role and as, as we try to find our way in, in these crazy COVID times. <laughs> yeah, man, that's what it's all about these days, isn't it? Um, and, and speaking of crazy COVID times, uh, I know that, uh, that there has necessarily been a, a staff reduction at the AHA, which means that everybody there is busting their butts to get everything done, uh, you know, that, that used to be done by more people. And, uh, you know, I guess we all need to really be appreciative of how hard everybody is working there these days. Yeah, couldn't couldn't agree more. Um, you know, I know just on a personal level that those reductions were hardest. You know, they they happened over the course of two different days in April and um, and June, and those were the two hardest, worst days of of my career. Um, I think anybody who's ever gone through something like that, um, you understand how hard it is to be on the other side of the table and what that means for the disruption of people's lives and livelihoods. And, you know, like I said, it, the, a lot of these folks were people I had worked alongside of for, for more than a decade. And, you know, I think something that maybe gets lost in, in that conversation is, you know, it ended up being 22, 23 people that, that we let go across the organization and every single one of those people was very, very good at what they did. And the economic reality imposed on us by the virus and and the financial hardship, you know, that I think it's important that everybody separate that from some some values assessment or judgment on on the people that were let go. They were all excellent, dedicated and and loved what they did and and loved and we loved having them with us. So that was uh, I'll never forget that. Yeah, you know, and that's a really good point uh, to not take any value judgments uh, out of out of the people that were let go, man. It was simply uh, something that had to happen, and it, it did. And uh, let's hope that it continues going forward, not happening again. Agreed. And you know, Danny, the other place my mind goes is is the you know you mentioned the staff busting their butts. Um, you know, myself and the, and the four other staff, um, you know, who some of your listeners are probably familiar with. Um, some of them, they probably aren't. But, um, you know, Dave Carpenter is the editor of Zymergy. Um, many probably are familiar with his work. Um, John Moorhead on competitions and government affairs. Um, Duncan Bryant is our web guru. And, and Megan Wapst um, is our program coordinator the last six months for me, I, I've been in awe of the volume and quality of work that that team has done. And, I, you know, again, I've worked alongside them for a long time. But when you get up uh, in the details with them and you watch the genuine care, it's not just a job to any of those people. You know, I mean, their genuine care 
part of working in a nonprofit environment, right? Like there is a connection spiritually for, for those folks and the mission of, of what we're trying to do and the members that we serve. You know, I mean, that word service, um, we talk about, um, service to our members and try to put ourselves on the other side of everything that we're doing and ask ourselves, does this serve the member? And, and that really is sort of the mantra that keeps us going. And I think it's also what, um, it's a catalyst for us to get as much done as we do with, with that size of staff. You know, uh, I, I really like something you just said, which is, does it serve the members? Because, uh, to me, that's what an organization like the AHA should do. That's why I've spent 15 years on the governing committee trying to make things better for the people who are members and for homebrewers out there. And knowing, knowing the staff personally, as I have for such a long time, uh, I, I really, really believe that their whole purpose is not to be there and collect a paycheck, but to be there and do something to make homebrewers' lives and hobbies better. Yeah, I think, you know, the word community comes to mind for me. There, there's, um, you know, and this brings me, it also brings my mind back to the pain of canceling Homebrew Con in person. That, that feeling of togetherness and community around doing the thing that you love, those, those names that I mentioned, right? John, John, Dave, um, Megan and Duncan, they're connected to that sense of community and the work they do. And that's what makes it not just a paycheck. And I think, you know, if you zoom out and look at the Brewers Association as a whole, it's one of the reasons why people who come work with us tend to stay for a long time, you know? Why? That's definitely true. Okay, so since you mentioned Homebrew Con, let's talk about it. Theoretically, that's going to be coming up uh, in San Diego this summer. Um, it seems like that might be kind of iffy at this point. So why don't you fill us in on where things stand and uh, alternatives and stuff like that? Yeah, happy to. So um, we expect to know... Um, whether an in-person homebrew con in San Diego will be viable um, and supported by our partners there, right? The town and country hotel um, by mid-March. Um, so you could think of that as about three months out um, from the June 17th to 19th dates. Um, the reason we don't make a decision before then is, um, you know, a bit inside baseball, um, but related to the idea um, of contract law, I can't believe I'm talking about contract law on a podcast. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really, man, a beer co- podcast getting into contract law. I'm going to take my headphones off and back away slowly. Um, but <laughs> a concept known as force majeure, which essentially is um, the uh, mechanism by which a contract is nullified with uh, no financial liability um, for, for resulting from the cancellation. And so, um, you know, as anybody who works in, in big events or conferences knows, um, we book these uh, locations out sometimes years in advance and, and, you know, at minimum 18 months in advance. So um, when we sign those contracts, we have certain obligations and um, our ability to uh, step away from those obligations without significant financial penalty um, 
we we think that will be possible at the, about the three month mark. So that's why we're waiting. Right, and and that makes lots of sense because uh, at this point it just doesn't seem like there's any way of knowing where things are going to be going. Um, you know, we all hope for the best. I, I don't know how realistic that is. Personally, I love the town and country, so I'm really, really hoping that uh, the conference goes ahead. But if it doesn't, we have the the backup virtual homebrew con, huh? Which was pretty well attended and a ton of fun last year. That's right. Yeah, over over a thousand um, attendees last year. And you know, Danny, one other uh, thought that I wanted to express that I, I realized I missed there is tied up in. <laughs> I got carried away talking about contract law. Well, you know, it's fascinating, man. I can see how that would happen. Um, I'm going to make that same mistake at the dinner table tonight. But the, you know, I I think the the thing that has to be talked about before anything else is that we know that nobody can get sick at a virtual homebrew con. And, you know, when we're having these conversations with the hotel um, and discussing what the viability is, all those force majeure conversations are tied up in and related to the health and safety of the people who are coming together in a big group. And so um, while the inside baseball piece has to do with making sure that we're doing our financial due diligence, the, the bottom line is cost or no cost, there's just no circumstance under which the AHA or the BA is going to run an event where we don't think where we're not absolutely confident that we can keep everybody healthy and safe. Yeah, well, I mean, of course, there's, you know, the the financial liability, but the the main thing is that there's there's the moral responsibility, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, man, that's that's what it's all about and that's, you know, what what we're always behind for homebrewers is the the idea the the concept uh, and and not trying to make money off of it you know so uh, I I really applaud that kind of reasoning on the whole thing so uh, a part of homebrew con is always the national homebrew competition and that's uh, kind of underway right now right entries are underway and they're really filling up nicely. Yeah, it's been really exciting to, to see the response to this this reimagined uh, NHC. Um, you know, we're excited that it's even possible after, um, as as many will remember, a, a last minute cancellation of some first round judge sites last year, right as um, we entered this COVID world. Um, if you asked me six months ago whether I thought we were going to be able to pull off of a four or 5,000 entry competition before a vaccine was widely available. First of all, we know how much the competition, as you mentioned, means to the members. It's a longstanding uh, tradition in, in what we do. And, um, you know, all you have to do is go to the, uh, the NHC homepage and you will see the ear to ear smile of a, a gentleman who had just won a medal and you know how much meddling means to people as well. So we really didn't want to miss a second year. Um, as you mentioned, we're right in the middle of registration and, and um, we're over 4,000 entries. Um, registration will be capped or closed at either 5,000 entries or March 3rd. If, if we reach March 3rd and um we're using uh, a, really a totally different model than we have in the past. Um, 
It's a great American beer festival competition model with a single location using our warehouse um, in uh, Louisville, Colorado. Um, it's the same warehouse, same operational layout as we used um, for the Great American Beer Festival this past fall. Um, John Moorhead, uh, our competition manager, is leading those efforts. But, you know, an important detail here is he's working extremely closely, and I would say more closely than he ever has before, with the professional division competition side. So Nancy Johnson is our uh, vice president of uh, meetings and events. Chris Swerzy is the competition manager for both Great American Beer Festival and World Beer Cup. And those three have been joined at the hip as we try to imagine what a, what a competition, what a homebrew competition looks like at this scale using uh, a lot of the mechanics uh, that make Great American Beer Festival and World Beer Cup the, the world-class professional or commercial um, beer competitions that they are. So it's, you know, I, I put it in this category of, um, you know, it's something that the AHA we feel like is uniquely positioned to pull off um, because we can lean on the competition expertise, both of John, you know, the folks we've worked closely with um, in the competition uh, subcommittee, a, a, a subsidiary of the governing committee that we were talking about earlier. Again, volunteers who are passionate about about beer competitions and and then we can also obviously lean into the, the expertise we have on the professional brewing side. So it's kind of a perfect match for us, but a, a huge change and really exciting early returns. So where's the judging going to take place? Yeah, the, um, I won't tell you the exact address, but it's in, in Louisville. Uh, <laughs> it's it, okay. You don't need a bunch of people coming up for free beer. <laughs> I don't know if that would happen, but the um, – uh, it's about 20 minutes outside of Boulder uh, here in Colorado, a big warehouse space that um, we really built out um, last fall um, with uh, ventilation, ingress, egress, uh, you know, picture the arrows taped on the floor, the socially distanced judging tables, um, multiple uh, designated uh, entrances and exits, um, face shields, face masks. Uh, hand washing stations, you know, every precaution that um, CDC guidelines and, and local state ordinance guidelines provide to help keep people safe in an indoor environment. Um, that's that's what you'd see at that warehouse. So how many judges are we looking for for this? Yeah, so um, John and I just hit our, um, just filled all of our, our judge spots. It's in the you know, roughly 40 to 45 judges in there per day. Um, it's um, a mix of Great American Beer Festival judges, World Beer Cup judges, and high-ranking uh, BJCP judges. So uh, a little bit of a crossover in what you uh, might have typically seen in an NHC final round or at, at uh, GABF or, or World Beer Cup. Interesting. I'm going to be curious to see how that might affect the judging because, well, I I don't want to diss anybody, but uh, sometimes people who are commercial brewers may not necessarily be the best judging, best judges for homebrew contests either have been my uh, 
my experience. So I'm going to be curious to see uh, if, I mean, I'm, and that's not to say they're going to be poor judges or anything like that. It's just that uh, they, they look at things differently. Uh, so it's going to be really interesting to see uh, feedback we get from some of these people who may not normally be judging this. Yeah. Tell me more. What, what, how, how have you seen? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How do they look um, at what? I mean, I, I have seen commercial brewers sit there and argue that this beer is not the style because it doesn't fit their conception of what a style should be, no matter what the BJCP guidelines say. And as we all know, right or wrong, the BJCP guidelines are what we're using when we judge. Yep. So, you know, it, it, as, as long as people can get over their own preconceptions, no problem. <laughs> and, and again, I don't mean to diss commercial brewers or anything like that. Uh, it's just uh, been an experience that I've had. So uh, let's just leave it at that, shall we? <laughs> Before I get myself good. into real trouble here. Yeah, you're going to be uh, in hot, hot water. Um, we'll have you off the GC in no time. But, the, uh, <laughs> you, you know, Denny, the thing that excites me about that is, you, you see names, some of the names of the, the GABF and World Beer Cup folks. And what I'm excited to do is bring those palettes, that, that beer expertise, um, people who are just living and breathing the world of, of beer and have experience in competitions um, to the homebrewing member. You know, I mean, I think there's not that many examples and I, probably not any example when we're talking about this volume of judges where homebrewers have the chance to have their beer evaluated by by some of these professionals from the industry. So um, I'm confident, it, you know, the, the feedback will get where it needs to be. But I think, you know, the, the bottom line is they're going to get their beer tasted by some really, really refined and, and practiced palates. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I don't mean to uh, imply that the judges I was speaking about are uh, by any means uh, a majority. Uh, I know a lot of great commercial brewers who have uh, been able to really help home brewers with their feedback. So since we were kind of in the homebrew con world, um, seminar proposals have gone in now, right? And they're being evaluated. Uh, tell us a little bit about that whole process. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, Drew, we're here. I'd be tapping him to talk about some of his experience. Drew's on that seminar review subcommittee. Um, but we just finished the review period uh, in the last week or so. Um, we've gotten 85 seminar submissions and um, there were seminars uh, submitted from 2020 that were accepted um, when we thought we were going to be in person, but were um, postponed um, because of capacity limitations for last year's online version. So we're also pulling forward another 20 seminars um, into consideration for this year. So we're about 100 uh, seminars total. And, um, you know, the, the group has um, reviewed seminars, given their ratings. And, you know, the next step is to come to consensus on um both the exact and final number that we will um, that we will be accepting, and again, that'll be contingent on whether HomebrewCon is is in person or online, and and then also just reconciling those those various ratings and and making the final picks. So we're close there, but it's been again exciting when you know you think about uh, 
the passion and the, just the care that it, it requires for somebody to submit a, a proposal. I mean, I, I know you and Drew have done it a bunch in the past. Um, why do you guys do it? Uh, we really enjoy the applause. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I mean, we do it because we have things that we want to get across to home brewers. You know, um, in, in years past, uh, that has been very, very technical information. So, I mean, I've been doing seminars now for, oh, geez, 10, 12, 13 years maybe. Um, and it, it's kind of evolved as my brewing has evolved and my whole purpose in brewing has evolved. Um, when I started, I was very technical, very into the science side of things. And through, well, let me see now, March 19th is going to be 23 years I've been brewing, and I just brewed batch number 575. Wow. And I've gone through an evolution during that time where I care a whole lot less about the science and why things happen and how things happen, and I care a whole lot more about just enjoying the hobby and having a really good time when I brew. And so... As those mess, you know, as, as our own thoughts on brewing evolve, the messages we want to get out there to home brewers evolves too. So, I, I kind of think that that's why we keep doing it because we have different things we want to talk to people about. It makes me think about one of the questions I wanted to ask you, and and that is, given the duration of your experience with the hobby, you've obviously seen, in some ways, I think generations of of the hobby and how, how do you think the average home brewer has, has changed now compared to say, you know, I, I think you guys have been doing a podcast six years, six yeah. years ago or, or 15 years ago. I would say that home brewing has become less of a religion and more of a hobby. Um, and that's not to say that <clears throat> there aren't the people who, uh, still are out there and spend every waking moment thinking about beer and, you know, formulating their new recipe in their head as they walk down the halls at work and stuff like that. <laughs> a lot of those people, but we're seeing a lot more people who are younger and have families and jobs they have to deal with and uh, who want something they can do that's fun and that's rewarding because anytime you make something yourself, you know, it's rewarding unless you brew like I do. And then it's only rewarding sometimes, uh, you know, so what we're seeing now is more people who want a quick and fun hobby that fits into their lifestyle as opposed to an entire lifestyle, you know, on its own. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I don't I, I don't know if that really makes any sense whatsoever, but, you know, that's just kind of my take on it. Yeah. No, I mean, I, you know, when you said I liked what you said about maybe more of a hobby than a religion, it makes me think about, you know, I mentioned Charlie's name earlier. And when I think about his book, um, the sort of aura that was around him, it, the word religion comes to mind and, you know, I, I've been spending, you know, especially as I step into this role, I've been spending more time thinking about 
the the way the average home brewer's mentality has evolved. And that's kind of what I meant about the generations, you know, that I think there was perhaps a, a Charlie Papazian generation of home brewers, and that has given way to uh, uh, maybe multiple since then, but but certainly a newer generation now that just has a different relationship to the hobby altogether, not better or worse, just different. Yeah, you know, and maybe maybe this example will uh, will make sense in those terms. When I started, the uh, the goal of every home brewer was to amass as much equipment as possible have a three-tier system with a lot of pumps and a lot of nice shiny stuff, things like that. And these days what you're seeing is a proliferation of the all-in-one brewing systems, right? Uh, it's stuff like you know, the Grainfather, the Anvil Foundry. There's a bunch of them out there now. And what those allow you to do is have the same brewing experience in a much more – Compact footprint, uh, you know, you can do it in your house. Uh, cleanup is easy and fast. Setup is easy and fast. So that's kind of like, like an example how, that I see how things have changed over that period of time. Yeah, interesting because, you know, one of the other follow-up questions I wanted to ask about just the sensibility of today's homebrewer was, you know, I don't know if you hear this, but I've certainly heard this truism out there that homebrewers are thrifty. And <laughs> you mean cheap, cheap as hell. <laughs> homebrewers are cheap as hell. And, you know, it's it, as just somebody with a curious mind, you know, whenever you come into when you're learning about a new subject and you hear something spoken as kind of accepted truth, I always I always like to ask, how, do we know for sure that that's true? And it, or is it as universal as uh, it's sometimes made out to be? What do you think when you hear homebrewers are, are, are cheap as hell? I believe it, man. <laughs> uh, I've seen it. I've been there. Um, I, you know, I spend a lot of time on Facebook and various beer forums talking to homebrewers. And, you know, I... Uh, you know, an example is I see most often people are not asking, where can I get the best hops? It's where can I get the cheapest hops? <laughs> you know, and, and that's just, that's just one example, but there's, there's a lot of that around, even in all in one brewing systems. You know, what's, what's the least expensive all in one brewing system out there as opposed to what are everybody's experiences with these and which one works the best and is the most fun to use. So, you know, I, I think if you ask anybody who runs a homebrew shop, you'll hear that. Um, you know, I, I think that it's just part of the natural homebrewer mentality to want to be thrifty. That, you know, that's why a lot of people build equipment and stuff. Uh, it's less expensive for them to do it that way, uh, or they enjoy the fulfillment of making things themselves. Uh, I have always been exactly the opposite. I hate building equipment. I figure that's just taking away time that I could be using to brew if I already had the equipment. Mm -hmm. So uh, that that's why my equipment building has been pretty much confined to putting a toilet hose into a, a cooler and calling it a mash tun. <laughs> I was uh, listening to 
you and Drew on a on a previous podcast, and you were doing a segment about uh, what's your least favorite part of your rig. You know, what's the part of your homebrew setup that you hate the most? Right. That was just and, on a recent episode. Yeah, and his was <laughs> something about his the faucet on his sink, and you asked him why he didn't just <laughs> you asked him why he wouldn't just he wouldn't just replace it, and he said something along the lines of, "Well, it's a it's a weird sink." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. It made me want to can't be that it, weird. <laughs> no, it, that's what I thought. It made me want to to gift uh, Drew a, a new sink. You know what you should do, man, is for Christmas just buy him a faucet washer. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. I'm going to do that. But I, you know, I love the idea of that segment. You know that there's there are these little annoyances in our setup. You know, and I think this applies to anybody's daily life too, right? Like you could find you could ask the same question about anybody who's working from an office setting or you know, is in a home office now, what's, what's the part of your home office that you hate the most? And I, I think, you know, my mind goes there as we speak about homebrewers, thrifty natures that, uh, the willingness to continue to tolerate these small inconveniences that seem like they wouldn't be expensive to fix, you know, or, or difficult either, but you know, hard, uh, yeah. Yeah, we're all like that. You know, I, I have things in my brewing setup that I've put up with for years. And, you know, and, and I think a lot of it is laziness. Uh, Drew and I often sit and, you know, argue about which one of us is the laziest one. And we would argue about it more, except we're really too lazy to get into it that much. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, it, you know, but I, everybody approaches home brewing their own way for their own reasons. And like I was saying, I have found that my reasons have evolved over time. Mm-hmm. And no matter what my reason has been, you know, I have to say that the beer has always been secondary, at least for me. You know, that's not to say that I don't enjoy the beer. I probably enjoy it too much sometimes. But. For me, it's been the the process of making the beer and the process of discovery uh, as I make the beer that has really been what's kept me at it all this time. You mentioned um, sometimes enjoying it too much. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I heard, I think this is going back in your archives a little further, but um, it, you might have been at the pub and you mentioned that you're having a uh, a fizzy water or a seltzer water. Oh yeah. Um, how much have you all heard from, from your listeners about the challenges of moderation in COVID times and making beer and having beer around all the time? Um, has that been something that you have engaged? Yeah, on? man. Yeah. We, uh, we got into that, uh, oh, maybe six months or so ago and started talking about, uh, stress drinking. Uh, mm. And that was really something that I found myself doing a lot, especially early on, you know, during the pandemic. Uh, and it it's one of those things that once I became conscious of it, uh, I was able to, uh, to really control it better. But for a while there, the stress was just so great. All I wanted to do, I mean, it wasn't even a conscious thing trying to wipe it out of my mind. Mm. And we got a lot of email and calls from listeners who were going through exactly the same thing, yeah. uh, you know, and, and 
kind of have gone through the same process of saying, woo, I got to get this under control and, and tamp it down. And so, you know, I, I don't think that's an uncommon thing. I mean, God, we both know that, uh, you know, alcoholism in the, in the beer industry uh, can be a problem because you have so much access to so much all the time. But it, it's also one of those things that I think we like to talk about on the show to get other people to think about, you know, uh, to let them know that, that we're not perfect. Uh, we have these issues. Maybe you do too. So let's, uh, let's think about what we need to do to deal with it. Now, on the other hand, recently we just, uh, heard from people who are saying, well, you know, because I'm not going out to bars anymore, I can drink stronger beers than I used to <laughs> when I had to drive home. So it's like I'm making, these people are going, I'm making a whole bunch of 10% beers these days. And, Frozen you know, Yeah, exactly. There's, there's both sides of it. Uh, you know, fortunately, Drew and I, uh, like, uh, like low alcohol beers a lot. Uh, not exclusively though, but yeah, we, we try and, uh, and keep it someplace in the middle. And I would hope that other home brewers would also, because, you know, I, I have known home brewers, uh, who have had to quit the hobby because they just couldn't control themselves. And we don't want to see that happening. Yeah. It's an interesting, you know, intersection of, you know, what could become a, a substance use issue and, you know, uh, a hobby that I think a lot of people find quite relaxing and, and actually a, a decompressor, um, a creative yeah. outlet that has so many positive mental health effects. Um, and yeah, it's a tricky equation for, for any issue with overconsumption to get mixed up in, in the otherwise yeah. positive hobby, you know? Yeah, it, it is, man. And that's, that's why I, well, it's not why I, but that's, that is a reason why I feel like I'm lucky to be more involved in the process than the beer itself. And I think mm. that that's, I think that that's generally true of a lot of home brewers. You know, I, I think, again, like I said, you know, they love the brewing process. They love the building equipment process and the beer that comes out of it for most home brewers is simply, you know, the reward you get for going through the process and not the end in itself. It also doesn't help that it's really, really hard to make a good non-alcoholic beer. <laughs> yeah, that's right, man. It doesn't, but that's why Drew and I both uh, uh, love brewing milds. Uh, you know, we've done several shows about milds and uh, having a having a 3% beer on tap and uh, then keeping a, a keg of carbonated water on tap also to alternate back and forth. That's kind of like the best of both worlds. My COVID kombucha consumption is, is up about a thousand percent. Yeah, I've never been able to get into that stuff. You know, I don't know what it is, but uh, it just always reminds me of like moldy leaves on the forest floor or something. Well, I think it is. It is moldy leaves on a forest floor, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> technically speaking, but, uh, at least it, you know, the, for me, it's about the, an interesting flavor, fizzy, the carbonation and, and yeah, that it's, it's a beer alternative, you know, it yeah. really serves, serves its purpose in that way. Yep. That again, that's why I like having the carbonated water around it. Cause I find myself 
you know, keeping a glass of beer beside me as I'm watching TV and just drinking it out of habit. And if I can have a glass of uh, fizzy water there while I'm watching TV, I can uh, go ahead and feed the habit of picking it up and sipping on something. And it apparently doesn't have to be beer. Imagine that. So before we wrap this thing up, man, this rather wide-ranging conversation, <laughs> is is there anything else you want to get out there to people about you or the AHA or what's coming up? Um, you know, the, the two thoughts come to mind. You know, one is I just want to express, um, again, my gratitude to – you know the the number right now is is around thirty eight thirty nine thousand AHA members. We appreciate your support. Um, we think about you every day. Um, we're looking forward to the day that we're back in person with you um, at HomebrewCon, whether this year or next. Um, so thank you, thank you, thank you um, for your continued support in that really makes possible the the work that we do on a on a day in and day out basis. Um, it does not go unappreciated. So thank you. Um, the, the other one that comes to mind, you know, I mentioned Duncan Bryant's name earlier in this conversation. Again, I don't think uh, as many folks know who Duncan is as say John or Dave, but um, Duncan's uh, been with the AHA a long time. I want to say eight or nine years and uh, he's our web guy and he just, if you haven't checked it out, um, give a visit to homebrewersassociation.org. Um, we just did a full redesign of that site. Um, Duncan leads that project with a bunch of other collaborators across the, the BA. You know, it's one of those projects where um, he's working with our creative team, our web team, our marketing team. Um, and that it's moments like that where the AHA looks a lot more like 20 people than it does five. Um, there's a ton of people within the BA world that are, are helping with that project. But um, we were glad to be able to launch that, that refreshed site that um, in these times when people are relying a little more heavily on digital content than before. And um, we're proud of, of the way that looks and hope that it um, surfaces some of the most valuable parts of, of what we have for, for our members and, and the, the community at large. Um, it's extra highlighting uh, for our recipe section, which we know is popular. Um, and it also tries to bring a little more uh, sunshine to the wealth of uh, technical information that is the Homebrew Con seminar library. There's um, going back decades, um, tons of expertise that has been shared on an annual basis at those events is, is all available at, at members' fingertips there. And we tried to make that a little easier to to get to and, uh, and find what you're looking for. So check out homebrewersassociation.org and, and think of Duncan uh, if you're enjoying your navigation experience. Yeah, man, it, it's very snazzy looking these days. So. Thank you. I've been talking to Ryan Farrell, the director of the American Homebrewers Association, about all kinds of stuff. <laughs> some of it relevant, some of it not. <laughs> Ryan, thanks so much, man, for taking the time to uh, to be with me today. We love you, Danny. Thanks so much for, for having me here, and uh, be well. Yeah, you too, buddy. Take it easy. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye-bye. So there you go. Uh, kind of turned as much into a Ryan interviewing me as me interviewing him. But it, it was fun. It was a great, fun conversation to have. 
Yeah, and of course, I think the big thing is going to be seeing where the AHA can go now, because, I mean, obviously there are a lot of challenges going on at the moment, and so uh, hopefully uh, Ryan is uh, well-equipped to tackle them, and, and we can all pull together to keep homebrewing going. Yeah, really, man. That's uh, that's going to be what it takes. Um, and hopefully we'll be in San Diego this summer. But to tell you the truth, I'm not holding my breath. So we'll see you at one of these conferences one of these days. Yes, and don't forget, you can see us virtually in your own uh, online boot camps <laughs> in April. That's right. Okay, we're going to take a quick break here. And when we come back, we're going to be wrapping things up. So stick around. From the Malt Innovation Center, Great Western Malting has released two new products. The first is Biscuit Rye, perfect for your next brewing or distilling experiment. It strikes a pleasant balance between toasted biscuit-forward flavors and classic rye spice. The second is Light Munich, a long-requested iteration of their popular traditional Munich, which brings some sweet malty complexity and a hint of copper color to your next recipe. Look for it at your local homebrew store and request it if they haven't stocked up yet. Welcome back, everyone, and it is time for the Q&A portion of the program. The first question comes from Mike Calling of Minneapolis, and he says, I have a question for Drew. In the episode about Cezanne, you dismissed the idea that Cezanne should finish around 1.002. I have made Cezanne's probably six times, one of my favorite styles and hard to find commercially, and I always get super low FG, like 1.002 or 3. I have only used YE's 3724 and Fermentus BE134. Am I doing something wrong if I'm getting such a low final gravity? Your guest said you probably don't want that low in FG. Should I add different malts with more unfermentable sugars? I thought Cezanne DuPont was all Pilsner malt, and it seems that something with all or mostly Pilsner malt will finish really low with a Cezanne yeast. Please elaborate on how to get a Cezanne to finish above 1.005. All right. So first things uh, first, uh, Mike, I didn't say that you sh- that you should shouldn't ever finish that low what i dismissed was that you see a lot of talk online from people doing saisons and there's a lot of uh, braggadocio type behavior with people going oh yeah well my saison finished at 10 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0. 0.5 um you know where they're just you know they're really really bragging about like the the attenuation factor that they get particularly for the beer that we were talking about in that episode the table saison I don't think you ever want to go that low because otherwise you're going to rob out and strip out everything else. So in the particular case of the table saison we were talking about, there was a lot of rye in there and that helped kind of keep things boosted up, you know, in terms of those adjuncts. And yeah, I mean, it's not necessarily a horrible thing if your gravity comes in lower. I just, 
I always worry whenever I see people kind of doing that talk of like, yeah, my, my Saison finished at 10.02 and I'm really bragging about it. It's not necessary for a Saison yeast to finish that low. And where you don't want the Saison yeast to finish at is, say, 10.14, 10.12, that area. To me, anything between about, like, say, 10.05 to 10.10 is an ideal range where you're going to get all the dryness and all the fermentation character without stripping out any of the rest of your malt character. And for me, I achieve that without really doing anything fancy. I mean, my sta- my bog standard saison, the one that I run all of my yeast tests on, is pills malt, wheat, and a little bit of sugar. And that usually finishes out at about 10.05. Um, now, in terms of why your mechanics are working, that you're getting 10.02 or 03, uh, we'd have to look at your recipes and try and understand if there's a particular thing about your process that's making it go that way. But at the same time, if the beer tastes good, that's fine. I just hate the 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 machismo of I got my beer drier than yours. Yeah, right. It's, it's like the uh, the efficiency competition. You know, it, it's it's not a competition. It just is. Now, the other thing I'm going to mention, if there there's very little difference between 1.002 and 1.005, probably you're never going to taste that, and it's well within the margin of error for measurement. So if your hydrometer or refractometer is off a little bit, if you're using a refractometer conversion formula that maybe is different from some of the other ones, you might be seeing that it's lower, but it's not really. And again, you know, if you're at 1.002 or 3 and you're shooting for 1.005, you ain't never going to know just by drinking that beer. Yeah, and again, like I said, the important part is don't let the thing dry out too much, but really don't let it, don't let it stall out too high. That's actually the bigger sum. Yeah, right. And again, if you want to try and keep it from finishing quite so low, take some of the sugar out. There we go. All right. Next question comes from David Shell of Cedar Rapids, Iowa, who says, so the poor method for NHC is either quiet or rouse. What is the difference and what are the advantages and disadvantages of each? <laughs> well, quiet means that the beer is poured very gently, doesn't form a lot of uh, foam, um, and the uh, rouse is the beer is poured more forcefully, which is the traditional way of doing it, raises the head, and uh, that head carries off some of the aromatics to your nose and helps you appreciate them. So that's basically the difference, the advantages and disadvantages of each. God, I don't know. I, I guess I can't figure out why you wouldn't want the Rouse method unless you were using a very highly carbonated beer, and then you'd want to pour it more gently to uh, have some control over that head. But beyond that, man, I don't know. This is something new for NHC. Uh, what are your thoughts on it? Well, I agree. I mean, Rouse will kick out a lot of the uh, a lot of the aromatics. I would think. You might want to do quiet also, not only in a case where you have a huge heading potential, but also where maybe I could see doing that with like some sour beers, for instance, where you don't necessarily want to kick off all the big aromatics that smack you right in the face initially. And it might be better to actually do a quieter pour there. Yeah, I guess. I I don't know. I would say that if they're going to give you a choice of how you want your beer poured, then what you should do is sit down and do some experimenting at home before you send them in and find out which way the beer presents better. Absolutely. Third and final question for today, and before I get there, don't forget, we are within a couple episodes now, three episodes, 
to our next all Q&A show. So if you've had questions that you've been holding up while Day and I have been, I don't know, vacationing or whatever it is that we've been doing while the podcast has been semi-dormant, uh, get them in. We need them. Bring us your questions so that we can answer them. And the earlier you get your questions in, the more likely you are to have a better researched answer. So, That's right. And otherwise, if you send it in at the last moment, we'll just make stuff up like we usually do. Which is fun, anyway. Yeah, um, that's true. So, final question for today comes from Patrick, who said, I heard so much about the character of the Schnook Hops grown in Michigan. Where can I find them for purchase as a home brewer? And that's an easy answer. Yeah, it is. Uh, I know that our hops came from the Michigan Hop Alliance, uh, run by Brian Tennis. So, I hopped online, sent him a message. And uh, Brian was really, really happy to hear that uh, homebrewers are interested in these hops. Uh, he normally only sells commercially in 11, 22, and 44-pound boxes. Uh, but he is so excited about this that he's going to start making one-pound packages available. Hopefully, by the time you hear this, you can go to michiganhopalliance.com and order yourself some of those Michigan Chinook hops. And while you're there, take a look around because Brian has a whole lot of stuff. Uh, he has a really, really nice selection of imported hops, a lot of hard-to-find varieties, especially New Zealand varieties, which I know a lot of people really love. Not all of them are going to be in, available in one-pound bags. So uh, you might want to go in with some friends and order 11 pounds of them, split them up, and be set on hops for a while. But again, to find the Michigan Chinook hops, go to michiganhopalliance.com and check them out because we love them. Yes, indeed. All right. And now it's time to get you out of here. A uh, couple, uh, couple things real quick. My quick tip for the week, make sure you have a slop bucket in your brewery. Slop bucket is handy. And what do I mean by a slop bucket? Well, I'm, I'm fairly certain that most of you, like Denny and I, have extra buckets laying around in your brewery. And so just kind of keep one on hand uh, during the brew day. It's handy for, you know, throwing things like any scum that you're skimming, extra hop material, you know, uh, the, the bags that, that you use to put your hops in, any random bits of trash. So just grab a bucket, put a trash bag in it if you feel like it, and Use that as your slop bucket just so you have it on hand. It's not all that dissimilar to, like, say, Rachel Ray's tip about having a, a, a kitchen bowl that you have on the counter while you're working. So slop bucket for the brewery. It's handy. You know, having grown up in Iowa, when I read that you wrote slop bucket here, <laughs> first thing I thought was you're keeping hogs now. <laughs> and knowing I, knowing your backyard, that was such an amusing visual. I was going to say, yeah, uh, hogs uh, rummaging through my waterfall. That would be a wonderful sight. <laughs> yeah, really. And your little dogs running around barking at them. Oh, man. What, what an image. Uh, well, if I saw a cookie, she'd be hurting them. Uh, <laughs> That's true. <laughs> really, really. All right. All right. So you've got something other for also, right? I do. And this is, this is one of those things I return to time and time again. It's an absolutely useless and useful store out there. Uh, com, which is the online home of American Science and Surplus, which is a oddball, wacky surplus store on the outskirts of Chicago. All I can tell you is go on to SciPlus.com, that's uh, S-C-I-P-L-U-S.com, and go and look around. It is bananas. 
It is crazy. There's all sorts of just weird stuff. No, I mean, is most of it useless? It's a surplus store. What do you think? Um, but I've gone there before and I've bought like cheap glassware to use in the brewery, you know, like graduated cylinders and that sort of thing. Uh, and, but there's just endless weird things in here. Like in the past, they always used to have like surplus military equipment from, uh, Eastern Bloc nations that no longer needed it. So, you know, <laughs> just like, okay, sure. Can you know, I get a Jeep packed in Cosmoline? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> but, I mean, <laughs> I mean, yeah, and and so, like even some like silly Chotsky type stuff. Like I, I was looking at the, the website, they have a little flow toy from uh, Progressive Insurance, uh, uh, little ice ball makers. So if you want to make balls of ice, um, you know, you you want giant playing cards, they got you covered. It's just all sorts of strange stuff. Um, just it's fun if nothing else to to go in there and look at it and go, why do people need this? <laughs> Damn you. I didn't need to know about this. Oh, yeah. It's great. It's it's oh, absolutely hysterical. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm going to have to have my wife lock up my credit card. Oh, well, you know, like one of the other ones that they have on now that, that's making me laugh, they have a, a a stocking cap, you know, like a beanie um, or Navy watch cap or whatever you want to call it. Um, and it's black and it has built-in LED flashlight into it. You know, so it's like a beanie and a headlamp. Just for you, so you can keep your head warm. <laughs> okay, that's about enough of that silliness. Huh? <laughs> Cyplus.com. <laughs> Thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, which is experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Drew hangs out on the Homebrewing subreddit and the Slack Homebrew channel, if he ever gets any time off work. Uh, I'm on a whole bunch of different beer forums, the AHA forum, most notably, uh, the Brew House, the Beer Garden there. And, uh, of course, I'm on Facebook way, way too much. Shoot me a question. Make all that time worthwhile. If you want to ask us a question or suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or even just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or you can actually give us a call or shoot us a voicemail or text at 626-765-1AL. That's 626-765-1253. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing. 